This is Disrupting Innovation with Dr. David Petrino. This episode's guest on Disrupting Innovation is Megan O'Rourke. Megan is an incredible person living with complex illness, uh, as well as an incredible author. Uh, she's the author of The Invisible Kingdom, which is one of the best books on living with complex chronic illness that I've read. I really wanted to bring her onto the podcast to discuss her personal journey. Uh, she has learned more about complex chronic illness than most physicians will ever know. So many of the drivers of discovery in this realm are going to come from patients. They're going to come from people who can thoughtfully curate their experience into manageable steps for those of us in, in, in the clinical space, in the scientific space, to explore and, and build into our scientific endeavor and our scientific engagements. So it was really an honor to get to speak to Megan, to hear about how she's been navigating these things, both as a, a journalist and a mother and a, a partner and a, um, and a person living with these conditions. And hopefully what, what I hope people will get out of this is, you know, just an actionable way of breaking down some of these complex ideas. Uh, you know, and getting to the bottom of, of hard problems to solve. After listening to this episode, I, I think that people are, are really going to come out of this with, with a, a an enhanced understanding of complex chronic illness, better understanding and appreciation for why community co-design is so important, why if we're building programs to help our patients, why we need to center patient voices uh, in everything that we do. Otherwise, innovation in the space is simply not possible. This is Disrupting Innovation with Dr. David Petrino. Well, Megan, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me on this podcast. Oh, I'm excited. Thanks for having me. This podcast, we're calling it Disrupting Innovation, and it's really focusing on this idea of that I often fixate on, which is this idea that it takes 17 years to take something from bench to bedside. It takes health innovation a really long time to take hold. What I do is I go and talk with people who work as part of the mainstream, but have been innovative in that space. I talk to people who have worked in other fields and brought innovation to healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I also wanna to talk to people who have been stuck in it, you know, like who have been waiting for healthcare to innovate for a really long time and have not really been able to reap any benefits from a very static system. In my mind, you need no introduction whatsoever. <laughs> uh, maybe just tell everyone who you are and, and about your book, which is winning like every award that you can win. <laughs> Thank you. So my name is Megan O'Rourke, and I'm a I'm a writer, really, primarily. I'm also an editor. I um, wrote a book called The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness that just came out this year, and that really chronicles pretty much two decades of my life, I think, searching for explanations for this host of mysterious symptoms that I had um, really beginning in my 20s. I got kind of inexplicably sick right after I graduated from college. And there's different versions of the story I can tell. Sometimes I think actually this started 
my whole life, right? But but starting in my 20s, I got this host of very noticeable neurological symptoms that were unignorable. And basically my health went up and down and mostly down from there over the course of um, more than a decade. And it took more than a decade to get any kind of diagnosis from the medical system. And so in the book, I tell my own story, but it's really woven together with almost a decade of research into precisely this question that I think you're asking in a way in this podcast, which was, why was it so hard in our hyper-diagnostic age for me to get a diagnosis? Like, what were the intellectual, structural, whatever other kinds of problems that existed that, that kind of put up a block between me and that diagnosis when, like, Meanwhile, a friend of mine was diagnosed with ice cream headache and it had this fancy term, sphenopalatine ganglioneuralgia. And I was like, well, you can get a diagnosis for that. <laughs> Why can't I? I can like barely walk around the block. <laughs> um, so the book, that's that's what the book is. And I talked along the way, I'm, I'm, a, I'm both, as a writer, my practice is sort of unusual in that I'm both a journalist and trained as a journalist. I worked at The New Yorker for years. I write for magazines like The New Yorker and The Atlantic, but I'm also a poet. Um, and so part of the goal of the book was, and I mentioned this because I think it's relevant, um, to animate something about the lived experience of people like me, because what I quickly realized was that as profoundly isolating as I found the experience, and it was just incredibly isolating, that I was not alone, right? And that's more clear than ever now in the age of social media and patient groups, but so the book is really to kind of give a voice to patients who are living through this and to animate just <laughs> how long the minutes, hours, days, months, and years can feel when you're watching your life slip by and you feel no one's coming to help you. An amazing book, uh, very worthy of all the ends of awards that it's winning right now. We always hear the opposite account to what I'm about to to, to say, which is, People always like to have the, this sort of trope of if you've seen one long COVID patient or one post-treatment Lyme patient or one ME-CFS patient, you know, you've seen one <laughs> of the, these patients, indicating that no two are alike and everybody's a little bit different and requires personalized care, which is true. But also, as both someone who sees people with complex chronic illness, as well as the husband of someone with a complex chronic illness, astounding to me how much of what you wrote was so relatable. You know, I was just like, I have lived this moment or I have seen this moment <laughs> unfold. And I think that that's so important because we're we're always say, we're always calling these things orphan diseases. We're always saying that mm -hmm. no two person, no no two people with these in conditions are alike. But at the same yeah. time, there are some very common threads. That, that sort of drive through all of this. And yeah. why are we missing those common threads in yeah. mainstream medicine? Okay, I think there's two parts to this question. I think there's, what are the symptoms and what are the overlapping kind of pathologies, right? That's one question. The other question is, which I'm gonna start with, <clears throat> is what are the experiences of us, those of us who live with these diseases? And what I think, is largely unifying and the part that has resonated the most for people what is that sense of being invisible and unseen right and that sense of i don't think it's overstatement to use the word trauma that that sense of trauma and uncertainty certainly that comes with what we now call medical gaslighting but 
also can just be the experience of going from doctor to doctor, even wonderful doctors, um, from specialist to specialist, looking for answers and really not knowing where to turn. And that experience is so common and I think so uniting of people's, um, those who have complex chronic illness that almost all of us have in some way, shape or form spent months, if not years, going from doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist, sometimes being met with kind of brutal indifference and incuriosity, sometimes being met with kind of benign neglect, right? Which was really my experience. Um, really nice doctors were like, we think you're fine. You know, we can't find anything wrong. Um, sometimes being met with things like racism and misogyny. So I think that it's actually very important for medical science to deeply think about what that experience is and how it shapes, if not the disease itself, what we call it, the illness, right? The, the experience of the disease. Partly because a lot of patients I interviewed stopped seeking care at a certain point. And I'm sure you've heard this story too, but, and I've done it where you just get burnt out, right? Looking for answers. The other thing is that what patients may be looking for and what doctors or clinicians think they're looking for may at times be quite different. And one of the things that interests me is that we haven't just spent enough time kind of theorizing in a way, like, what do you do about people whose bodies are at the edge of medical knowledge, right? Medical knowledge is very interested in what it knows and what it doesn't know. It's trying to, researchers trying to figure that out, but it, doesn't think a lot about like the people living now in that space of not knowing and what that experience is like and how it should treat them in all senses of the word. Um, so that's really what I hear from people the most, right? It's just what resonated for me is just seeing, you know, that moment, there's like a moment in the book where I start crying, you know, like on a dirty Prius outside of a doctor's office because she just like didn't, she wasn't interested, right? In my case. Um, I don't know if you ever listened to the podcast Hidden Brain, but they just did this episode about relationships and they were talking about the need for understanding and that part of any successful relationship is feeling heard. And I was like, aha, like that's what I think a lot of chronically ill patients are missing is that piece where instead of just going straight to, I don't know what's wrong with you or nothing's wrong with you, or it's that moment of understanding and really hearing what's the worst of all the symptoms you have, like, which is the one that's hardest to live with? Like, it was astonishing to me how infrequently that question was asked. From the medical side of things, clinicians are trained from, from the earliest point, you know, from my own training as a clinician, from the earliest point that I, I can remember my training, uh, it's kind of drummed into us not to get emotionally involved, not to engage or become highly embedded in whether or not your patient gets better or worse. Right. The idea right. is that you step back, you're dispassionate, you're right. a scientist, you right. follow the you follow the clues, you identify the problem, you treat the problem in a very reductionist way. Right. Right. Um, and you refer out to other specialists if it's not right. your specialty. What yeah. we're learning in, in the burnout literature, if you look at clinical yeah. burnout, what we actually see is that you're less likely to be burnt out, which is completely opposite to what we were taught. You are less likely to be burnt out if you care for your patients. That's if awesome. you cry when something bad happens to yeah. your patient, when you experience emotions with them, mm -hmm. because the mental energy required 
to actually, while a patient is unloading on you and saying, all of these things are happening in my life and I don't know what's happening. Like the mental energy required to just be okay. like, I am very yeah. sorry that this is happening to you, yeah. you know, but yeah. not actually feeling it is more likely to call, cause burnout than actually saying, you know, I'm I'm here with you and you're going to go cry in your dirty prayers and I'm going to go cry in my dirty office. <laughs> Shit, that was hard. That what we just went through together. Um, we're told not to do that. Yeah. Um, and so, I, and I think that that sets off a cascade of not being willing to get curious and chase answers for someone who is testing negative on everything. And right. then ultimately being like, well, this is a messy, difficult patient. I don't, you know, I'm going to refer them to psych or I'm going to tell them that there's nothing wrong. That's the worst kind. But then also there will be the, the kind of like, I don't think I can help you. Even if they feel kind of bad about it, you know, that they can't help you. In in the world of complex chronic illness, you know, we, we the, the whole point of this podcast is to explore everything, you know, whether it be technological innovation or just innovation in the way to treat someone with a complex chronic illness. I think it starts with how do we emotionally train clinicians to deal with uncertainty to deal with the enormity of what someone with a complex chronic illness is going through on a daily basis that we're not emotionally equipped for it. Yeah, you're totally speaking my language. I mean, I, I think that, right, like how do we live together in uncertainty? And how, especially when the relationship has long been and is, and it is, it's like an asymmetrical relationship, right? The, the clinician does have information that that the patient, the person with illness desperately wants and needs. And when they don't, and they say, okay, that's it, that's the end of the road, it shuts off the possibility of other kinds of information, other kinds of relating too. But I wonder if you think, um, as you're talking about burnout, that's fascinating, I didn't know that. I wonder if it also has to do with clinicians and people in medicine feeling like they're whole people, right? That they're not just deliverers of this very narrow intervention that they're able to practice an ethic of care really right and if you don't get emotionally connected you're 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 just fundamentally disconnected from that ethic of care that's an interesting question i would like to know this probably exists the study i i just don't have it yeah. I, I would like to know how many people actually uh, in in clinical care visualize themselves or yes. identify themselves as caregivers versus yeah. scientists or clinicians or, or so on and so forth. I mean, right. uh, I, I was That's eternally true. fortunate to have a conversation with Judy Human, who's an amazing, uh, you know, disability rights activist. And yeah. she doesn't like using the term caregiver for home health aides who mm -hmm live with people with disabilities and perform tasks related to activities of daily life because care is often not in the equation there. These are people who are getting paid a pretty crappy wage by right. Medicare and Medicaid right. to be in your home and kind of dispassionately do stuff. Often it is done without care. They right. are home health aides and they perform tasks and and, you know, one of the things that I've observed with uh, folks with severe disability who come to our clinic accompanied by a home health aide is there is actually kind of a mutual mm -hmm. neglect of 
one another. They kind mm-hmm. of, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're not friends, they're not family, mm-hmm. but they're together 24-7 and they right. don't necessarily have right. to or right. or do like each other because it's kind right. of this awkward pairing of you get who you get. Yeah. Um, care isn't care isn't entered into that conversation often in healthcare yeah i just said care but you know uh in medicine well no and someone i was talking to who's at the yale med school i just gave a talk in their medical humanities program said no why why would we want medicine to care for people why why should care be supplied by medicine which i think is a is a question worth asking that said when i i talk about this a bit in my book and over and over there's studies that show when you're in some kind of, when you actually have a disease process that's distinct from a disability, let's say, you you benefit your, every measurement we have of disease shows like improvement when you're treated by an empathetic doctor. And some of the studies were astonishing to me, like the effects of empathy were as strong as many of the strongest medications or interventions that we currently have for chronic illnesses. And to me, that was like, a very eye-opening moment of like, okay, I, I feel like I want someone to be nice to me, but like, well, actually there's a material reality here that we can document, which is kind of mysterious, but intuitively fascinating too. Intuitive and fascinating, yeah. It, it's somewhat discouraging to me how often I need to remind clinicians about the fact that yeah. um, if you're not spiking someone's cortisol because you're creating a stressful experience by being dismissive or being rude or being brusque or, you know, uh, or if you're doing something to an inpatient, uh, in an inpatient setting that like uh, unplugging a machine that is alarming constantly, even though it's not attached to something, um, the level of, you know, relief that people receive is sometimes, yes, exactly more effective than a medication that they're being provided with because you're removing a significant environmental stressor that was causing genuine damage. What I found, and and I think this speaks to the need for innovation too, and we've sort of touched on this, is that the siloed nature of medicine and the fact that if you're, many of us who have complex chronic illnesses really have systemic illnesses that by the way also change, like my symptoms change all the time. There's some core ones, but they fluctuate and they come and go. And sometimes a new one happens. Anyway, what would happen is that, you know, I would go to the rheumatologist and the rheumatologist would be like really interested in my joint pain, right? But my joint pain didn't really bother me that much. And it just could be very hard to find the person who would take on the the systemic symptom. You know, like I feel really terrible in the morning and I feel like I have a hangover every morning or I had a lot of neurological, strange neurological stuff that, you know, it's like who's really, neurologists kind of help with that, but a lot of it's about living your life. And also, you know, I think we need sort of coaches in a way as well as doctors. And there's a question around that, like, is that part of medicine's job? And if so, how do we think about that? If we're not gonna have cures right away, like how do we help people function so they can hold on to jobs and relationships? And all of those questions I think are not being asked enough about like, okay, if we can't get from here to A to Z, like what about all that space in between? And I think by the way, that that's why people many people look to alternative medicine 
because alternative medicine is interested in some of those questions um, in how to help you live your life a little bit more effectively. Almost every alternative medicine format that I can think of views the body you know, functionally as a whole, as opposed to we're going to go to this specialty and this specialty and this specialty. And, you know, one thing I don't think I can state strongly enough is hyper-specialty, mm. hyper-specialization is not worth a damn thing if the specialists aren't speaking to one another. That never happens, you know. And, um, and so then I do, I do strongly question Mm-hmm. What is the point of being a hyper, you know, hyper specialized clinician mm-hmm. if you're not going to speak to 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 the folks that are that are going on? You know, the clinical situation in my mind that often comes back to me, which haunts me a little bit because I had a a patient that was doing extremely poorly. They were emotionally and tearfully just telling me, me that after a a seizure event that they were just unable to get their life back on track. Nothing, nothing was working. I reached out to their doctors. I was like, can I please just have your medication list and Mm -hmm. anti-seizure medications, which are, you know, basically benzos plus ADHD medication, which basically uppers plus (laughs) a bunch of other things that were all interacting. And I contacted this individual's neurologist and this neurologist, I don't know which cereal box the, the medical degree came in, but <laughs> he said to me, no, these won't interact. This is the psychiatrist. This drug is the psychiatrist problem, <laughs> you know. Oh, God. Yeah. And this drug is, is me. And no, these drugs don't interact because, you know, this is being given for a psychiatrist. I was like, no, no, no. The, the no. drugs don't interact based on why they're being in brain. <laughs> and of course, we fired that neurologist on behalf of my patient, got the patient a new neurologist who was immediately horrified by the drug cocktail that was being, you know, taken right. and uh, immediately changed things around. And lo and behold, this patient no longer felt that they were losing their mind. That was their terms. And Right. Suddenly, they when they weren't taking three or four conflicting medications that affect the neuro, the nervous system in a different way, they were on track. Yeah. But th- this is one small example of a thousand examples I see like this, Absolutely. where yeah. a single conversation between practitioners would have cleared that up and unified an approach and made the person feel better. But it wasn't even a possibility yeah. to get these folks. The yeah. idea was laughable. The idea was you know scandalous that i would say hey neurologist would you mind picking up the phone and talking to this psychiatrist wow so even when you asked there was i mean flat no (laughs) what's wild is i heard like almost verbatim a a similar almost exactly the same story yesterday from someone who had actually asked one of her many doctors to manage she has all these medications that she was worried were interacting and she was having suicidal ideation (laughs) and she asked one person to manage them. And that person was like, well, no, I think you should just keep seeing that doctor for this and this, you know, and then anyway, ended up getting off the medication and voila, no more suicidal ideation. But when she had asked the doctors to collaborate and help her figure out which ones she needed, they just wouldn't. So clearly this very siloed structure does not work for 
people with complex chronic illness and the idea that somehow this you get the best of all worlds right you get this gp kind of managing your care and all these great experts you know adding even more value is really not what's happening it's more like this very decentralized group of people who as one person i interviewed put it to me it feels like they're crossing their organ off their you know like you go to them and you're like i have all these problems and they're like not the heart see ya <laughs> you know not the nervous system see you later <laughs> like you're not my problem and she was like at the end like they've crossed off my entire body <laughs> You know, yeah. But I was still really, really sick and no one would help me. Yeah. So I do think in terms of innovation, it's like very clear to me that we have to find a way to really incentivize collaborated, coordinated care. And, you know, what the AC, you know, Affordable Care Act has little gestures toward that, but it, it needs a more radical overhaul. <laughs> it needs a more radical overhaul. It needs buy-in from insurers because... There are, you know, there's some great things in the Affordable Care Act around, yeah. for instance, uh, nutritional support. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like in complex chronic illness, a skilled and talented registered dietitian can Thousand. do so much for patients. Thousand percent. But, you know, insurance doesn't cover it. it no. You know, it uh, costs you about 300 bucks a pop to see a good RD, you know, out of pocket. And, um, and no one is valuing that level of, of, of input, whereas the Affordable Care Act actually does allow for mm -hmm. an RD to be brought in, you know, quite easily. So yeah. if you do get your healthcare through the ACA, you can actually see, you can see a nutritionist. That's amazing. <laughs> With other insurers, forget about it. Part of where the innovation needs to happen is just thinking about the body as a whole system, not just because you want. You're crazy! What a novel idea! <laughs> like we're all gonna. It'll never, it'll never catch on. It'll never catch on. I remember just being like, "But am I really like a carburetor and like an engine and like I felt like a car, you know?" And then I think what happens is that the you're left alone in your head to think, well, something's wrong with me because all these different parts are broken as opposed to, I mean, something's wrong with me. Yes. But like, something's like wrong with me, you know, like I've somehow failed because all my parts are breaking as opposed to, you know, got this delicate system of interconnected hormones and stress hormones and, you know, genes. And it's, it's all connected. And if we make little tweaks, maybe everything gets a little bit better which is really how I ended up functioning, by the way, for a long time before getting a diagnosis was things like nutritionist, things like lifestyle modification, um, supplement, just figuring out over time, sort of testing myself like I was my own lab subject and keeping very obsessive charts and slowly improving, but I, I didn't have anyone to help me with that. And I kept thinking this would be better if we could use technology, by the way. And I think people are now working on this. If there were apps, if there were really ways to facilitate my own active participation in this too. And I had someone giving me feedback. When we talk about innovation, when we talk about how to create innovation, and, and like I said, you know, I typically, we're, we're typically dealing with technology, robots and brain computer interfaces and things like that. And where scratching our head saying why isn't this being taken up in in a case of complex chronic illness no one wants to own it no one is there's no interdisciplinary care so yeah. there can be no possibility in mainstream medicine of rapid innovation uh without 
the interdisciplinary component because there's no no one specialty is going to say yes this is my thing yeah. to take most of the disruptive innovation right now is coming from patients is coming yeah. from people with the condition yeah um yeah. saying okay we're fed up yeah and yeah. what i find particularly fascinating uh about this and empowering about this uh is that for some reason all of the dum-dums in mainstream medicine don't seem to understand that this means the writing is on the wall for them if if yeah. people stop taking part and participating yeah. in yes. this foolishness <laughs> that yeah. we're selling yeah um what's what's the value of mainstream medicine yeah. you know is are the days numbered is something else going to cut you know are we going to be god i hope not but you know amazon yeah. health where you just you don't need doctors anymore you just sort of send yeah. in samples to because ultimately if you've only got physicians who are relying on these highly reductionist physiological tests yes an ai and a machine learning algorithm can do that better than a physician right. and if right. you're training dispassion right in your physicians right so you can't you know you can't even you can't even get that you know that experiment where the the baby monkey would go to the fuzzy milk machine like if you can't even get that from your physician well then right. hell let the robots prescribe right. me medicine it'll, right. it'll probably be cheaper and more accurate well, and i was just reading about I think it was through the Aspen Health, you know, I had tweeted something about like, yeah, this robot that comes in is like really, really nice to you. And I was like, right, you, you could imagine wanting to go to the robot who would be really nice to you and say, I'm so sorry, I don't know really what to do for you, but it's like a nice robot. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, that's where I start to, that's where I get discouraged because I'm like, oh God, so much needs to happen, right? How do we, how do we innovate? And I guess that's where the writer in me thinks, first people have to understand the stakes right and first people really have to imagine for a moment you know what it feels like i think one problem by the way with innovation is that there's something about chronic illness that is just hard to imagine um with like a sense of drama right and and i think when, when we hear of a friend having cancer right we feel this little like right but when you hear like a friend has i mean i don't feel this way but i think when other people when they hear like you have a chronic illness they're kind of like okay that's just your reality right there's just this kind of cognitive challenge um presented by the very chronicity of it and sort of imagining the freshness each day of the reality of being the person who's like oh and i still have to deal with all these things and there's a little bit of this assumption that okay that's just your place in the health hierarchy Right. And I found that a lot in medicine, too, that there was just this way in which there was a certain incuriosity because it was like, this is just your lot in life. And that's that. You just have to adjust to it, which there's some truth to. Obviously, there's some adjusting work that one does, but we're not going to get answers and make care better if, if we kind of take this complacent approach. Right. And we have to have some sense of burning curiosity about these conditions, even if they don't kill people right away. Right. That I think sometimes is a little missing. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Um, I bounce between two things when you, when people talk about this particular mm. issue, the first is, 
fatal versus non-fatal. The thing I hear from bad clinicians all the time is, well, well, they're not going to die tomorrow, so, you know. Yeah, um, yeah uh, exactly. And, and this rumination on a person comes to you in distress because they absolutely feel like they're dying and the gaslighting doctor will say, well, you know, this is how it was last month and you didn't die then, you know, right. like it's somehow okay right. Right. that the person is going through this so that there's right. no urgency around it. So I think that that is, yeah. is part of it, you know, to, to your point. Um, but I also just think that we're set up as humans, not just clinicians across the board, we're, we're set up for very reductionist thinking. So cancer is compelling because there's a tumor, like regardless of whether we can treat the tumor, there's a tumor, we can see it. This is causing you problems. Here it is. Um, with, you know, a gastric ulcer, with, you know, whatever the case may be, a bacterial infection, um, when we can be reductionist, we're happy. Yeah, totally. This is it, you know, whether or not we can effectively intervene on it, great. Pharma has gotten a lot of benefit from also claiming victory in reductionist science, even though yeah. their track record is god awful, you know? So like, um, yeah, I'm not, not afraid to say it. Um, <laughs> That's, yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, like yeah. when I listen to pharma reps talk about how, you know, SSRIs revolutionize depression care, yeah. I, it makes me want to puke. It, it is, it is absolutely incorrect. Sure, do some people benefit from SSRIs? Yeah. Yes. Um, is it problem solved? Absolutely not. But the certainty with which yeah. I hear folks talk about, well, this receptor and, you know, yeah. and, and this hormone and therefore serotonin, blah, 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 blah. Like it is, it is a reductionist problem. Yeah. Um, without taking into account any of the, you know, emerging evidence that we have about, you know, um, the role of environment, the role of genes totally. and so on and so forth. Um, and, and we do that with everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, you know, someone with a complex chronic illness comes along and you can't say it's my thyroid or it's, you know, yeah. no, it's like I have systemic inflammation that is possibly happening because of too much histamine in my body, which is then causing mitochondria. <laughs> dysfunction, microclots maybe, as we've learned, right, right. Uh, you know, X, Y, Z in all of these organ systems. And hell no, you can't see it on a test. <laughs> Don't see them. That would be too easy. But um, the story is long. And, the story is really long. Yeah. Uh, and people have a short attention span. They just want to hear, like, there was the tumor, the surgeon cut it out, and now I'm fine. Totally. Um, Totally. Right. And like that kind of medicine is kind of ama is amazing. Right. I mean, I think it's incredible the, the interventions we can make. But yeah, when you are not someone who has the short story that can be dramatically, you know, intervened with um, and you have the like, well, I was near a dog and then <laughs> I yeah. ate this. And the, you seem like you're very preoccupied with your health, which you are because you're trying to make it better, right? And I, and again, I guess that's where I think a lot about this idea of, of understanding between doctors. And I've been wondering, and I wonder if you think 
this, maybe this exists, but you know, Atul Gawande's um, book, The Checklist Manifesto and his idea of like checklists can really save lives in surgery, yep. surgeon, he wrote this first as a piece for the New Yorker. But I've been like, why is there not a chronic illness checklist? Like, why is yep. the checklist not, what symptoms bothering you the most? Um, uh, what percent functionality do you feel you have? what's the highest percent functionality you've had recently and the lowest? Why do you think that is, right? Just a more of this like model of collaboration, I think yeah. could really well, be- actually at the, at the top of that checklist, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. at the top of, I believe you and I have seen yeah. people like you before. Yes, that, that, absolutely. That's like the number one thing to trigger tears right. in, in, in most interactions that yeah. I have. Yeah, and it brings tears. I that happened to me, and by the way, it happened to me, and it was followed by um, my it was my neurologist who's still my neurologist, and she said, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to help you, but it didn't matter. Just yeah. recognizing me, I mean, I write about it again in the book. Like for three days, I was in such a good mood <laughs> because she had said, I don't know if I can help you, but I know there's a problem that we should be helping with, right? Yeah. So, so why, you know. Yes, there's all these problems that we are really hard to solve, but like let's chip away at these. I don't know. Why is autoimmune disease not on health histories that you give at doctors' offices? That's a big puzzle to me, right? Like yeah. family history of autoimmune disease. We get we have cardiac disease, we have cancer. Like put let's put that one on. I say this because I feel like the poet and you will um appreciate it. Is <laughs> there's there's possibly room for some reverse gaslighting of um <laughs> reductionist medicine right so we look yeah. at things like uh all the stuff that we're now learning about flaws in in overly reductionist medicine such as yes. let's talk about orthopedic surgery let's oh, talk yeah. about the fact that yeah. Yeah. you look at someone's knee and you see all of this debris in the knee and they've yeah. got a sore knee and so then you scope the knee yep and and they come out of the surgery and they feel better recently um in Australia, uh, because yeah. you know, we're, we're a colony, so we can do research <laughs> like this. They've been doing placebo surgeries to yeah. do. Yeah, I wrote uh, about this. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's like the most done orthopedic procedure. It costs yeah. so you know, yeah. it costs so much money, and suddenly a few folks were like, "Does this really work?" I mean, you do it, but does it really work? The people who got Plus you know it. a small incision with with a couple of stitches with no arthroscopy had the same long-term knee outcomes as the folks who totally. had, had the total arthroscopic washout. Now, this is stuff that we were sure about, right? This is like, yeah. oh, look at all this crap in your knee. Let me just go in there and clean it out totally. and you're gonna, you're gonna feel a million bucks. Yeah. You sell it, you sell it, and then yeah. <laughs> sure enough, the person feels a whole lot better. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think that we need to spend a lot of time sort of knocking down those ideas as well as uh building up these ideas that everything is more complicated than you know than we're thinking it is yeah that actually happened to me after i wrote about that study in my book and then sure enough my knee started hurting i went to the doctor and she's like let's just go in and you've got this debris and i was like you know what i'm just gonna wait and have a little <laughs> and like think happy thoughts about my knee which whatever could well not have well not have worked but just time there's this really interesting question too of, of the reverse gaslighting is important. And then I think also like, what is medicine's role in, does it have a role in make, 
talking to the chronically ill person or the person with complex chronic illness about their experience of the disease and the the narrative that they're telling themselves because i sometimes I, I think that the fact that you're living with something chronic means you're constantly telling a story about the condition to yourself and that story can change and is very influenced by medicine and by culture and society and your family your loved ones your job and one of the most powerful things a doctor did for me was he said, you know, you're actually like very strong. You just have had these infections in a series and that was really hard for your body to deal with and you never stopped to let your body deal with it. <laughs> and not in a negative way, like he wasn't putting it on me, but to just have that flipping of the script and be like, anybody who went through this would be in your shoes was incredibly helpful to me, whether it's true or not. You know, and so I think sometimes a little bit just thinking about that role too, is that, you know, patients and people with illness like really do value the input that they're that's why gaslighting matters. And that's why in curiosity matters because it's not because we're here being like, we just want to be on WebMD and in patient groups talking to each other is because we really want that expertise and that uh, sense of interest and of being seen. To draw a parallel, you know, between mm -hmm. people in, in clinical roles and uh, mm -hmm. people with complex chronic illness, mm -hmm. both are often told that they need to be more resilient. Both are often mm -hmm. like keep it together. Yeah. Lots of lots of people have aches and pains. Lots of people have this. Lots of people often with chronic, complex chronic illness, especially you know, one of the things that I'm always keyed into is especially if you are good at mm -hmm. putting up with suffering. Mm -hmm. I've often seen folks have to turn on theatrics because it's like they're in ten out of ten pain, but they're so badass and tough that they're just going to sit in the emergency room arms folded and they're going to say i'm in 10 out of 10 pain you yeah. better do something yeah but yeah. because their life is 10 out of 10 pain yeah they don't they don't externalize you know they're not like you know screaming and clutching their stomach they're saying like very calmly i don't <laughs> i don't want to upset you clinician <laughs> but I'm but wrong. I'm something's wrong <laughs> pain, you know yeah. um and that gets misinterpreted as, oh, well, I've seen what 10 out of 10 pain looks like and this ain't it, you know. But that happens a lot to people with complex chronic illness. It also, I, I see medical students get told you got to be more resilient. And it's like, dude, this, this person, you know, immigrated here in hellish situations, lived in poverty, <laughs> made it, you know, miraculously made it through Harvard Medical School. And now they're struggling in your residency program. Do you think mm -hmm. maybe it's your residency program that is the right. problem and not their right. level of resilience? Right. And right. Do you think maybe it's the system and not right. the fact that these patients just want to be sick or, you know, right. once again, I mean, the theme that keeps coming back to me is like at this level of mistrust and misunderstanding, how on earth do you innovate when, mm -hmm. when there's, and, and again, the parallel I see is, we're often trying to innovate in in wellness with residents and 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 yeah. fellows, and what we're often told is like, why on earth would I tell you anything yeah. about me because you're going to use it against me? Like, <laughs> oh wow, that's really so interesting. Yeah, but I feel like we're at this level of mistrust right now. You know, um, 
you know, the the MECFS community yes. is now like actively warning the long COVID community, like guys, you know, careful. Tell yeah. them stuff, some stuff, but be careful what you tell them because um, yeah. it might not go well for you. Um, yeah. it, it could be weaponized against you. And and we see some of these papers coming out that are uh, mm. just overtly gaslighting patients with complex chronic illness. I mean, I would bet I have never told a doctor all of my symptoms. I would bet... And I have doctors I really trust now, but I would bet I have never once said, here's everything I'm dealing with, you know, and this is how it's impacting my life because it just would be overwhelming to them. Yeah. Is my feeling about it. And you probably couldn't fit it in, right? Well, I couldn't fit it into 15 minutes for sure, yeah. right? And, um, I, yeah, I couldn't fit into 15 minutes. Look, fundamentally, the first step, I think, has to be bringing in patient experts, right? I mean, just fundamentally. Yes. That's what's gonna, and, and, and in a spirit of, let's look to the future, right? And let's look to the past in terms of what we don't wanna replicate, but just, we all need to just say, there is a, and especially, I mean, I had a nightmare, like it was like a poet's nightmare about long COVID, which was, I'll give it to you because it was an apt analogy, I think. But basically, I had this dream that radiation was spreading across America and we were all exposed to it. And we were all like slowly realizing that we were sick <laughs> and that we were like, in fact, quite sick. And this happened after a really good friend of mine was in the ER last week with long COVID stuff. Another two, two friends. But, you know, I think that we are in crisis and we do urgently need to address the fact that chronic illness is, you know, a huge driver of healthcare costs, a huge driver of lost life, of lost, you know, income for people. And we absolutely have to say, we have done this wrong. It's not working. And I think we have to collaborate and medicine has to realize that there is knowledge in patients have a certain kind of knowledge. They don't have all the knowledge. Don't just listen to us. None of us want that, but like, listen to us a little bit because we have information especially in, you know, MECFS, long COVID, you know, chronic Lyme or PT, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, autoimmune disease, you know, this is, there's just so much, I think, kind of knowledge out there that's untapped. I mean, I think that we've, we've started this conversation, we haven't finished it, and <laughs> there's, there's more to be had, but uh, as we move toward building a center for complex chronic illness, you know, one of the things that you approached me about was how do we tell the stories of all the people? Because yeah. we do yeah. need to capture that um, because yeah. there's going to be so much important information in that. There's going to be so much lived yeah. experience that can either generally socially support others or actually end up being the thing that turns the tables in finding some sort of biomarker or some sort of, um, you know, common thread in... Yeah the 200 symptoms or the 300 symptoms that we're navigating, everything that we, uh, you know, are trained to think about clinical research is that that is such a red hot, terrible idea that <laughs> that's what someone's subjectively telling you. Um, imagine listening. <laughs> imagine listening. Imagine listening. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, uh, we're actively discouraged to do that. We're yeah. actively told sometimes the sentiment is don't allow patient support groups because 
they they will spread unhelpful information and then suddenly you've lost control of right. your patient um right. which you know this these, these are i'm i'm verbalizing very real concepts these are things that are said yes. to me by, in many cases people i actually respect um yeah. and then i'm i'm like oh <laughs> respect you a little less now that that, that was said. but it's like um, you said the part out loud that you know right that we know everyone's thinking again it comes back to this is an aspirational talk i don't want this to not be an aspirational talk but but i think it comes to the point we need to acknowledge how broken things are yeah. before we, we start piecing together um yeah. you know a new approach i agree with you that lived experience and community co-design for complex chronic illness has well for all illness has to happen but yeah. more so than ever in complex chronic illness we do need to start picking up the pieces here because it's yeah. um right now i mean it's it's untenable and i do believe in what we do clinically I don't want patients to feel like, you know what, I'm, I'm on my own and uh, forget mainstream medicine. Yeah. I, I think that there is value. We, I think that there is a value add to what we do if we do it right. But it, it very much is burn it all the, to the ground and start over at, at this stage. But, and also beg patients for forgiveness. Yes. For everything that has gone before. Like, can we please just not attend to that for a minute? Yeah. And, and and try to forge forward because you know there is a lot of hurt that that needs to be just somehow healed or at least not focused on so that we can <laughs> so yeah. that we can forge ahead. Well, acknowledgement goes a long way, you know. I mean it, it's not gonna go the problem is many people, I, I would include myself very much in this category, have like materially lost out on things in our lives because, you know, and I'm doing well and ha was functional for a long time before I was really not functional, but it's like, there's, sorry, there's a way in which, um, you know, you can't, one thing I always say that I think is really true is, you know, you, you can't focus as a person with illness on building a life with and around your illness until the reality of that illness is acknowledged. And I think, a corollary is until the reality of the harm of the gaslighting and the ignoring and then not knowing how to help, but saying we are helping, this is in your head or whatever, that it just has to be acknowledged. It, it just does. And I am with you. It's like, right, how do you, how do you actually get people to think differently? Right? How do we, how do we name bias and show it as what it is? Because I think there's just a lot of bias here. Um, some of it comes from really understandable concerns, like sometimes online patient groups do spread misinformation. You know, I've been in ones that spread misinformation and spread really important information, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that patients shouldn't talk to each other. It just means how do we build trust so that we can create situations where the patient comes with misinformation that you can correct it, or you can say, well, I'm not sure that that's true, or this is unproven in order to innovate in this space some really important questions around what the idea of do no harm is need to be asked. Because I actually think that it can start there for medical science, right? Medical science doesn't, it's all about acquisition knowledge and evidence-based medicine and algorithms now. So how do you, how do you actually again carve out a space where we have a way of thinking about medical education actually 
talks about when you don't have those things, what do you do? And what kind of harm comes from just saying, there's nothing on your test or I don't have any treatment without any further connection? Yeah. That, that's a real question. I love that. Uh, I think we we have discussed this uh, in some of our many text yeah. messages before, but yeah. Yeah. To, to build on that, I think it's important, you know, that our very precious Hippocratic Oath also talks about the ability to help without knowing. Mm. The, the fact that the job of a physician is not always necessarily to know, but it is always necessarily mm. to be helpful. Um, and important. Yeah. understanding what being helpful is, um, which to your point can be, this is real. What you're going through is real. I see it. I feel it. I may not be able to help you, but yeah. I'm going to try. Yeah. And a little shiver. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's help, you know? It's help. Um, as opposed to all your tests came back negative. I'm going to refer you to psych or I'm going to refer you to a specialist. Um, this seems like a brain thing. I don't do brain things. Yeah. That is yeah. not helpful. So you're, <laughs> you're failing in in this oath that you took, um, if that's if that's going to be the way yeah. that you do things. Look, that takes a toll, right? Having energy to recognize other people's suffering is really hard. But as you were saying too, it, not recognizing that suffering is also, in fact, maybe harder. Well, <laughs> yeah. in the end, you know. And, and also, if you if you're not doing it, what what are we doing? Like, right. Right. why? I, I, often say this to to the medical students that rotate through our centers it is um like there are just so many better ways and more efficient ways to make money if all you're trying to do is see as many patients as possible and and clock out at the end of the day like that's not that's yeah. not practicing medicine that's not healthcare. that's right. that's just capitalism you know right. and in, in which case reevaluate you know like you go be an investment banker or you know <laughs> you'll make probably more money too well you would no you will make more money like if, if this is the goal like what we're doing isn't easy what we're right. doing requires care it requires connecting um and if you're not connecting then like what what is the point of it like what are you chasing? I, I really want to know what the motivations are. And God help you if you tell me that it's, well, you know, dad was a doctor, so I just figured I'd be a doctor. Like, that's not a great reason to do anything. <laughs> yeah. I think we've identified the problem. <laughs> we, yeah, I know. We need a whole, need a whole other session on, uh, on solving it. But uh, no, I mean, I, I think that this is, uh, this is exactly the sorts of the sort of conversation that we're we're always trying to have, which is, um, uh, you know, where what where are the holes? How do we fill the holes? Uh, I think that the big takeaway here is, of course, um, clinicians remembering to do no harm. Yeah, um, exactly, and, and thinking deeply about how dimensional that statement is. It's not yes. just don't take an action. It's also don't be inactive. Yeah, sorry. Exactly. Yes. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then also just complex chronic illness is not going to be solved without without the help of the complex chronic illness community. So 
finding ways that we can bring that community back to the table after decades of neglect and mistreatment, um, we, we've got to do better and we've got to start acknowledging and we've got to start uh, bringing, uh, you know, uh, sending over <laughs> olive branches because absolutely we got yeah. a lot of work to do now and it's not these aren't rare invisible diseases this is 15 percent of the population 20 percent of the population um and, and we need yeah. solutions and by the way it's a population that gets sick quite young right i mean mecfs very young um you know a lot of autoimmune disease are getting people are getting sick younger and younger so you know, absolutely, we we need that olive branch and that trust to be rebuilt. And also, I think it's really of societal urgency because this is, you know, this is the generations of people who are out there trying to have jobs and families. <laughs> Megan, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Your book is demonstrably helping a lot of people. I see it every single day. Uh, thank you for writing it. I know it takes a toll to to share something that personal. Yeah. But, um, oh, that's. I'm glad to hear. I know it, it's been uh, such a joy talking to you and I could talk to you for hours about all of this. Um, and I've realized too that, you know, I sort of thought, okay, the book is done. And then, you know, having this kind of conversation over the past months with you, with others, with, with people who are sick, I'm just realizing, right, there's actually so much more to write and do. So um, always, always amazing to get to talk about this. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next. And thank you for uh, taking some time to chat with me.